The reading and preaching of God's Word tonight comes from 2 Kings uh, chapter 13, the second half of that chapter. I'm going to begin reading at verse 14 and uh, continuing to the end of the chapter. 2 Kings 13. This is God's holy word. Let's listen attentively uh, as it's read. 2 Kings 13, verse 14. Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow, and he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands, and he said, open the window eastward, and he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year, and as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Now Haziel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. When Haziel, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father, in war. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. We're going to end our reading of God's Word there this evening. Well, friends, it's become very common for us as a society to celebrate Uh, the deaths of important men and women, oftentimes with great pomp and circumstance. All across the pages of human history, important people have been lavishly honored and memorialized following their death. I think, for example, of former President Abraham Lincoln. After his assassination towards the end of the Civil War, his, his body was placed on a funeral train that made a very long trip, uh, over 1,600 miles from Washington, D.C. to Springfield, Illinois, where his body is still buried today. And along the way, the train made various stops, and thousands of mourners would come out to pay their respects to the president. 
First, there were uh, 40,000 in Baltimore. As the train made its way towards Springfield and stopped uh, in Philadelphia, 300,000 gathered to pay respects. By the time it made its way to New York City, a half a million people came out. Most of you probably remember the, the lavish funeral of Princess Diana after her accident. Uh, 2,000 people attended her funeral at Westminster Abbey. The British television audience for that event peaked at 32 million viewers. Worldwide, 2 billion watched the event on their screen at home. We generally recognize the, the lives and the deaths of great people in great ways, grandiose ways. But in contrast, in our passage tonight, where there is recorded for us the death of God's notable prophet, Elisha, well, the account seems very ordinary, very plain in comparison. His death is mentioned, it seems, only in passing. It's sort of a, a footnote compared to the rest of the account. Certainly no pomp and circumstance, no, no lavish memorial for God's notable servant. And, and what is more, uh, the account of Elisha's last quote-unquote miracle uh, attributed to, to him posthumously seems to just sort of pop into the narrative out of nowhere. In fact, at first glance, the record of the resurrection at Elisha's tomb doesn't seem to connect to anything else in the narrative. Verse 20 simply states, Elisha died and he was buried. End of story. A very ordinary conclusion to the rather extraordinary ministry of this great prophet of God. And yet what transpires following his death is far from ordinary. Our passage tells us that the Moabites and some raiders from that land would often cross over uh, the border into Israel. Israel's borders at this time were very vulnerable, very porous, and they would come to plunder and steal and destroy harvests. And on one such occasion, they interrupted the burial of an Israelite man. And flustered, a little bit afraid, uh, the burial party simply cast his body into the tomb of Elisha. Now, today, you can't easily toss a body into somebody else's tomb. But back in the day, uh, tombs in ancient Israel were often dug out of soft rock. Sometimes they were located uh, in caves, and so his, his tomb would not have been that hard to access. And something miraculous happened. Amazingly, no doubt to the great surprise of this man's friends, as, sh as soon as the dead man's remains just brushed up against the, the remains of Elisha, he rose from the dead. Resurrection. He stood on his feet, and he went on his way. And that's it. End of that story, it would seem. Two short verses, and then the, the focus switches to some other matters in the kingdom of Israel. And we wonder, what is this snapshot of this event? Why is it recorded here for us in the pages of Scripture? What purpose does it serve? We might wonder, what is it about Elisha's bones that could bring about such a uh, a great miracle. Well, tonight we're going to see that this miracle, far from being ordinary, far from unimportant, was in, in some ways the crown upon Elisha's work. 
was a very fitting conclusion to the work of God's prophet because through this miracle, God was teaching Israel, as He would teach us here tonight as well, that we must find our life only in the true and the abiding Word of God. There's a warning here that for those of us who neglect and despise the instruction of God's holy Word, the consequence is death. But for those who abide with God by seeking and obeying His Word, there is a promise of resurrection and everlasting, abundant life. And we notice that, first of all, life in the abiding Word of God. One of the first things we need to notice about this last miracle of Elisha is that it took place during a time of great trouble, great distress for the people of Israel. Earlier in this chapter, in verse 3, we read something tragic. In chapter 13, verse 3, we read this, "...and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He gave them continually into the hand of Haziel, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel." We're told that during the entire reign of Israel's king, Jehoahaz, the Lord caused the enemy nation of Syria, to oppress God's covenant people. And the passage also tells us why, why the Lord's anger was kindled against His people. They had abandoned, they had disobeyed God's Word. Israel's king was a bad apple that didn't fall very far from the ancestral tree like his forefathers Jehoahaz, did great evil in the sight of the Lord. And if that weren't bad enough, he caused all the people of Israel to join him in his wicked disobedience of God's Word. He and all of Israel had forgotten the Word of God. And it's against that backdrop of their rampant sin that the event at Elisha's tomb serves as a warning for God's people. Just as the Israelite man was was cast or thrown into the grave of Elisha, God promised to throw or cast His people Israel into exile. The same word, um, shalak, is used there to be cast or thrown. Their sinful idolatry, their forgetfulness of God's Word had made Israel like a putrid stench, like that of a dead body in the nostrils of God. And so they are worthy only to be cast aside into the pit of death. I think of Jesus' words about the unbelieving Pharisees of His day in Matthew 23, that by rejecting God's Word, they had become like whitewashed tombs. They looked good and clean on the outside, but inside they were filled with dead, dry bones. There's a warning here attached to Elisha's death and the event that took place there around His tomb. And we must heed that warning as well. If we think for a moment that we can lead abundant and fruitful and meaningful lives all the while harboring in our hearts an apathy for God's Word, harboring a a rebellious spirit, a a rebellious heart that refuses to heed God's instructions, if we think we can hold on to that apathy and that rebellion against God's Word and still live a fruitful life, we are sorely deceived. 
The writer to the Hebrews says this, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. We're called to exhort one another continually so that we do not become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We are called to listen to God's voice, to listen to His Word, and not harden our hearts in rebellion as the people of Israel did. We learn something else as we return to the passage. We learn that Jehoahaz's sin was later mimicked by his son. Jehoash, also uh, named Joash here in the passage, his son ruled after him. And we, li- we read in the passage that I just read, verses 14 and following, that during his reign, during Jehoash's reign, the threat of Syrian invasion was just as great because Israel had not yet repented. And we have recorded here a very interesting exchange. We read that King Joash, filled with fear, filled with grief over this exile that's uh, closely approaching, he crawls to God's prophet Elisha before he has died, and he crawls to him for help. Read in verse 14, now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash king of Israel went down to him and wept before him, crying, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. It's been said, of course, that there are no atheists in foxholes during time of war. We could also say that in Israel there were no godless kings during the threat of an enemy invasion and exile. Joash cannot help but admit that Elisha, the one who has been called by God to declare the Word of God, he cannot help but admit that it's Elisha who is the strength in Israel, who has the real power and authority in Israel. He is the chariots, the horsemen, uh, the military might in Israel. Interesting enough, you remember that this was the very words that Elisha had for Elijah, his master. Because as prophets, they were the heralds of God's Word, which was the real power, the real strength in Israel. And that's why when Joash crawls uh, on on hands and face to Elisha to ask for his help, Elisha uh, points him and the entire nation to their greatest need They must return and they must seek God and depend upon His promises declared in His Word. The solution to their impending death in exile lies in God's Word, a Word promising rescue and deliverance and new life for those who trust and obey the Lord. And you notice that even in his old age, In his weakened condition, Elisha is firm with the king. He gives him uh, no time for shedding tears. He basically says to the king, get up off your face. Quit your pity party. Stop your groveling. Take action. Take action. Take your refuge in the promises of God's Word. He calls him to do a number of things here in verses 15 to 18. He says to the king, take a bow and arrows, and he does so. He's to draw the bow, he's to open the window eastward, and then shoot. 
And Elisha declares something about the arrows, the symbolism of the arrows. He says, this is what they represent, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow arrow of victory over Syria. These arrows are symbolic of a promise of God to His people. You shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And with that knowledge in mind, he then tells the king to take the arrows and to strike the ground. Elisha uses the sign of the arrows to remind the king that the battle was not his. It was not Israel's. It was the Lord's battle. God is the one who would rescue His people from death and exile. They would rise from the rubble if they would abide with God and keep His Word. And yet even here, Israel and her king fail the test. Read in verses 18 to 19, take the arrows, he took them, strike the ground with them. He struck three times and stopped. And Elisha, the man of God, is angry. He's angry with him. He says, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will only strike down Syria three times. It's stunning, really, the king's lack of confidence in the promises, in the Word of God. Elisha had just told him something wonderful to soothe his fears. He told him that the arrows in his hand are symbolic of the Lord's victory over Syria. Implied is this, king, you better strike the ground as zealously as you can. You must strike the ground with the arrows of the Lord's victory with joy, with confidence, with hope in the Word of God. But what does the king do? He apathetically strikes the ground a mere three times with the arrows of the Lord's victory. And then he stops. He doesn't go any further. That's why Elisha is furious. For King Joash, this should have been a moment of of kindled emotion, a moment of wholehearted dedication to God under the thrill and the comfort of knowing that God was with him in the battle. God's word of promise should have spurred him on to action, to faithful devotion. Elisha basically gives Joash and the people of Israel a blank check on the word of God says, fill it in, any amount. And the king responds by his actions and says basically, thanks a lot, but I think I'll only cash half of it. And how often we too, like our spiritual forefathers, content ourselves with a besetting apathy for God's Word and the wondrous promises it makes. Instead of claiming God's covenant promises by faith with zeal and joy and excitement, we become bored with those promises. And we seek our life and we seek our our meaning and our contentment in all the wrong places, in people and things that cannot satisfy. And as a result, we lose out on the true comfort that God means for us to enjoy simply because we neglect the Word of God 
And we remove it from the center of our lives. We remove it from the center of our families. We remove it from the center of our worship. And we replace it with things that are impotent, that have no life-giving power like the Word of God does. Elisha's last miracle is a warning. It's a call for us to recover our zeal, our love, our excitement, our dedication to the Word of God. But along with that warning, we notice something else. Along with that warning, there comes a beautiful promise. The promise that God's Word is true and it abides forever despite our lack of faith. Even after Elisha dies and he is entombed, we read here in this text that the power and the promise of God's Word remained alive and well. The promise of God, the Word of God, did not die with the prophet. And in the case of Israel in Joash, the Word of God came true. Take a look at verses 22 and following. We read that the king of Syria, Haziel, did continue to oppress Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But look what we read. The Lord was gracious to them. He had compassion on them. He turned toward them. He turned His face of blessing towards them. Why? Because God is a faithful covenant God. Because of His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, He did that. He would not destroy them, nor, the the narrator says, has He cast them from His presence until now. And what about the promises made to Joash? We read in 24 and following, when Haziel, king of Syria, died, his son, Ben-Hadad, became king. Then Jehoash, or Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, the cities he had taken from Jehoaz, his father, in war. That land was returned to them under his rule. And then look what we read here. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. God's Word is true. His promises don't fail. Under Joash, Israel did defeat her fierce enemies, just as God said He would. No more, no less than the three times promised by God's Word. That is the God that we serve. Out of His abundant grace, God fulfills His promises even to His fickle and inconsistent and disobedient people. And that covenant faithfulness signaled to Israel, as it signals to us, that we can trust God and we can trust His promises. Israel could trust that that God's promises would prevail, that even after going off into exile, they would return. A remnant would come home. The kingdom of Israel would not be lost forever. God would fulfill His Word, and He would accomplish His will for His people, but not because of Israel's obedience, not because of Israel's ability or desire to fight. He would fulfill His promises based on His covenant faithfulness. What an important lesson for us to learn. It's not the power of the church. It's not even our individual obedience or faithfulness that secures our victory over our enemies, the sin, the flesh, and the devil. It's the covenant faithfulness of God that assures us 
that He will preserve a people. He will preserve His church for Himself. And that is where we must place our trust as believers, in God and in the unfailing promises of His Word. Then we can cast aside our pride and put away our worldliness and seek communion with God as we abide in His life-giving Word. Well, the miracle at Elisha's tomb certainly calls us to life-giving communion with God through His Word. We mustn't abandon that Word. We mustn't be apathetic about that Word. But this miracle at Elisha's tomb also does something else. It points us forward to the promise and reality of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, who is our risen Savior. Sadly, if we know the Old Testament fairly well, we know the rest of the story for the people of Israel, don't we? Just a few chapters later in chapter 17, we read about Israel's regrettable and tragic end because of her ongoing sin. God's people were carried into exile. They were cast into the pit of death for a time. But as we noticed, as we saw, the resurrection at Elisha's tomb called the people to take refuge in the promises of God's Word, that their exile would not last forever. It would be temporary, and it would be followed by victorious new life, resurrection. Dry bones, dead bones would live again by the power of God's Word. Death would not have the final say. It would not have final dominion. The people would rise again. They would live again spiritually, physically, eternally through faith in the promises of God. We mustn't miss the full significance of this rather unique miracle at Elisha's tomb, that there was resurrection in the kingdom of Israel at Elisha's tomb, not because of Elisha's bones, but because of the power of the coming, risen Lord Jesus Christ. In the life-giving death of Elisha, brothers and sisters, we, we see there prefigured, we see there anticipated the work of our once dead, now risen Jesus Christ. Just look at the parallels here. Just as by Elisha's death, life was given to another person. At Elisha's death, the truth of God's Word was demonstrated for all to see. So in the same way, in the aftermath of Christ's death, what happened? The tombs broke open. People came out. The covenant promises of God's Word were realized in a new and expanded and permanent way. Life, not death, speaks the ultimate word. Christ's death and His resurrection vanquishes the ultimate threat of death for us. There is life, there is blessing, but only in covenant communion with Christ and His Word. And that was the purpose. That was the message of Elisha's entire ministry. Elisha was a man. He finished his work. He died at a full old age. Of Elisha, it could be said, like the psalmist says in Psalm 103, that his days are like grass. He flourished, and then he was no more. 
God's prophet, God's word bearer, died. But in Isaiah 40, we have this added, that while all flesh withers and fades, the word of our God stands forever. And that's what happened after Elisha's death. Elisha died, but the covenant word of God abided. And this good news, this best news of all, news of new life, resurrection life in Christ, is the word, Peter says in 1 Peter 1, that was preached to you. This life-giving, regenerating, transforming, spirit-empowered word is yours, Christian through the teaching and the preaching of the gospel. And so children, children don't neglect this word. Hide this word in your heart that you might know God, that you might not sin against Him. Young people, don't despise this word. Don't grow cold towards this word. Don't become apathetic about God's word. It is the only reliable guide to light your path in a very dark world. And adults, don't neglect this word for yourselves, for your families. It's your very life. It's your very life. Yes, in this rather interesting account, we see that death could not reign at Elisha's tomb because the word of God triumphed over death and over all of God's enemies and the enemies of Christ's church. And death cannot reign in your lives if you live in utter dependence upon the Word of God. And the reason for that, the reason that death cannot and will not reign in your life is because many centuries after the miracle at Elisha's tomb, another prophet came a man who embodied faithful Israel, a man who came and kept God's law perfectly, a man who came and underwent divine judgment for sin. He died. He was cast into the pit of death. He was exiled from His heavenly Father, but He did not stay there. He enjoyed victory over death a restoration to life as the founder of a new Israel, a new people of God, the church, you and me. Put your faith, put your trust in this prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ. Be daily ruled by His Word and His Spirit. Find your renewal and your redemption from sin in Him alone. He wants you to rejoice in His favor as your covenant God. He calls you to walk in a way of new obedience and thankfulness and joy. So, Christian, abide in His Word so that you might abide in God and He might abide with you. Abide in God and His Word and experience now and forever the comfort of spiritual new life, and the glorious hope of the resurrection. Amen. Let's pray together.